thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, as we now come to Luke chapter 17, we're coming to the final weeks of Jesus' life. He knows his time is short with his disciples, and so he wants to prepare them for when he departs. He wants to prepare them for the time that they're going to minister when he's no longer with them. And so in this chapter, Jesus is going to share some of the essentials in the Christian life. Some of the things that are just so important, things that we deal with every day, things that are very relational, things that just happen uh, a lot, and oftentimes we don't do very well, uh, things that are really things that matter in the Christian life. And so he's going to deal with seven things, seven things for us that are foundational to understand here in this chapter. And those seven things that Jesus is going to deal with are not stumbling others, rebuking in love, forgiveness, faith, service, thankfulness, and preparedness. These are seven things that are very practical, seven things that are very applicable. Uh, We deal with them a lot. And so, you know, with all Bible study, we don't just want to have an intellectual understanding where we walk away and we say, oh yeah, I know how to do that better. Great. We want to actually put it into practice. And since a lot of this is relational, uh, this is really, really helpful things uh, to put into practice in the relationships that we have. Now, this morning, we're going to look at the first four things that Jesus deals with, and then next week, we'll look at the the final three things. And so let's start off with the first thing that Jesus speaks about, which is not stumbling others. So Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 1, says this, Then he said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. So here Jesus starts off sharing with his disciples about offenses. Now before we look at what Jesus says about offenses, let's make sure we understand what this word means here that he's using, because I think in our culture today, we've kind of shifted the meaning of this word. It's like, you know, anything that we say that someone else disagrees with, now all of a sudden, since we have a different opinion, we're offending them, and we've gotten very, you know, offensive mindset here in our culture, and so that's not what Jesus is saying. It's not like, you know what, if you have a different opinion, uh, if you believe something different than someone else, and all of a sudden, you've offended me, and instead of you know, we can agree to disagree or we can have discussion over disagreements. Now in our culture, it's, you know, everything is offensive, you know, if we're just disagreeing with the way in which we believe in different things. And so let's make sure that we don't think when Jesus says offense, because sometimes we hear that word and we think, oh my goodness, everything's offensive, because that's kind of where we're at in our culture today. But this Greek word translated offenses originally meant the movable stick or trigger of a trap to ensnare an animal. Here's a picture of a trap that they would use back in Jesus' day to ensnare animals. I'm sure some of you as kids or maybe even as adults probably made some of these traps. I remember my brother and I using a cardboard box uh, and a stick and a string doing this. And, and really the trap, that's what it was. It was some kind of thing that would be the container held up by a stick and it would have uh, connected to the stick would be the bait and some string or something of that nature. And so when the animal comes in, grabs the bait, the stick moves, the trap collapses on them and they get ensnared. Now, my brother and I weren't smart enough to attach the string to the bait and just leave. We hid behind a tree, and we just held on to the string and held on to the string and held on to the string, and then we just got bored, uh, and we actually put beef jerky in there because we thought, we love beef jerky. Surely the animals will. We decided to go eat the bait ourselves, but um, we didn't trap anything, but that's where the original word is started with that, and then it kind of shifted uh, over time to really uh, mean something a little different. The word came to refer to any impediment placed in someone's way causing that person to stumble or fall. Now, if you have a different translation than the New King James, there are some that translate this a stumbling block. Some Bible translations translate it a temptation. It's talking about when when you put something in someone's path that stumbles them, that tempts them, that causes them to sin, that hinders their relationship with God. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, you know, offenses. So it's you offending someone in such a way that it's hindering their relationship with God. It's hurting that. It's causing them ultimately to sin. 
So Jesus isn't just speaking about any particular offense or sin. He's specifically talking about things that we would do specifically to other believers uh, that would offend them in their relationship with God. Let me give you a few biblical examples of this Greek word. You'll see this Greek word in a few other places. Uh, Matthew's gospel, chapter 16, verses 21 through 23, it says this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, that this this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense, that same Greek word, to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. So Jesus is telling the disciples the truth. You know what, guys? I'm going to die. There's going to be a time coming soon that I'm going to be delivered to the chief priests. They're going to kill me. And this isn't news that any of the disciples wanted to hear, especially Peter. And so Peter responds saying, no way, Jesus, that's not going to happen to you. You're not going to die. And notice how Jesus responds to Peter. This is one of the great rebukes in Scripture. But he first says, get behind me, Satan. And then he says, you're an offense to me a stumbling block to me, but notice why. You are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. You see, God's plan was to send Jesus to die on the cross for our sin, and Peter was just like, you know what, I love you, I want to be with you, I want you to stay with me. You're not dying, you're not going anywhere, forget that, no way, Lord, that's not going to happen, because Peter was just mindful of his own thoughts, of the things of men. He wasn't mindful of the things of God and the plan of God, and so Jesus says, you know what, you're an offense to me. You're a stumbling block to me, and he rebukes Peter because of this. You know, so you and I can be an offense in this way when we rebuke people or we tell people things that go against ultimately what God wants for them. Now, you know, we have people that are purposely doing that. You have false teachers. You have those who are deliberately going out to mislead people, to deceive people, to try to get people to believe something that God doesn't want for them. But you know what? There's also, and that I hope is, you know, none of us, but, you know, we can be guilty of this kind of like Peter is in the sense that we're not trying to do this. It's something that, you know, we're not deliberately saying, you know, I want to be an offense, but out of a misled love or misled loyalty or, or just a lack of understanding God's will, we can often follow, fall into this reality. You know, I think Peter loves Jesus. He doesn't want Jesus to leave. And he's just kind of sharing his heart. This isn't going to happen. You're not going to die. But he wasn't mindful of the things of God. Instead, he was mindful of the things of men. You know, I've seen this with several well-meaning parents. I know people who have felt a call of God on their life to go to the mission field, and they bring this call to their parents, and they say, Lord, you know, God's called me to this country or this place to do this ministry. And their parents' response is similar to Peter's. Not so. There's no way you're leaving this house and moving all the way over to Africa or moving to wherever. And the sad reality is it wasn't like, well, let me pray and really consider it and see if this is God's calling on your life. And if it is wonderful, we want to support that. It was just kind of like Peter, the selfish, we love you. We don't want to see you go. And so no way are you leaving here to go far away from here and do ministry somewhere else. And sadly, many of those people that I know and I'm confident they did have that call of God in their life didn't go. And their parents were an offense to them. They stumbled them. They ultimately caused them not to do what God was calling them to do because they said, no, no, you're not going to go do that. Stay here. That's something I very much have appreciated about my parents because, you know, I've been all over the world. I first went to Austria, then to Scotland, then to Georgia, now here in Houston. And guess what? None of those places are in California. Uh, and every time that I came to them and to share my heart of, I feel God calling me here, they never said, well, why don't you come do ministry here? There's plenty of lost people here. There's plenty of need here. They always said, you know what? You got to follow where God's calling you to do and always encourage me where God was calling me, as opposed to, not so, don't go there, don't do that. And, you know, I think parents are well-meaning. They love their kids. They want them close. But even in a well-meaning way, I think we can be guilty of doing what Jesus is saying here, of ultimately stumbling someone in their relationship with him. Another biblical example of this word is in Romans chapter 14, verse 13. It says, do not put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in a brother's way. So here it's translated stumbling block as opposed to offense. And it's just recognizing don't put something in someone's way that's going to trip them up, that's going to hinder them in some way in their relationship 
with the Lord. And it's interesting that here in Romans chapter 14, Paul is dealing with Christian liberties. These freedoms that we have as Christians, and he's specifically talking about this meat that, you know, some Christians recognize, you know what, if I eat this meat, it doesn't make me any less of a Christian than someone else. And there's this other group that says, oh, no, if you eat that meat, you know, you're a horrible sinner. And and Paul's saying, you know, you recognize you have this liberty. You're free to eat this meat. You're free to do this. Other people don't see that. But don't use this liberty that you have to cause them to stumble. When you're with them, love them enough to say, you know what, I won't eat this in your presence. I won't do this around you because I don't want to cause you to stumble. I love you enough not to do that. And so within our Christian liberties, sometimes we say, well, I'm free to do it. You just get over it. Instead of, you know what, I love you enough. I know you struggle with this. And so when I'm with you, I'm not going to exercise that liberty out of love for you. So that's another way in which we can cause offense. And once again, it's not like we're deliberately going out to do it, but yet we can be guilty of it. Another example of this is Romans chapter 16, verse 17. It says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause division and offenses, once again that word, contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. Here's the one that we probably most commonly think of is this person who is teaching doctrines, teaching things that are unbiblical, teaching things that go against what the Bible says. You know, obviously that puts a stumbling block in front of you. That puts an offense in front of you when someone is deliberately coming and trying to teach you a doctrine that's unbiblical. For those of you who have been coming on Thursday nights, we've been going through the book of Galatians, which is a perfect example of this. The Judaizers, they've come into Galatia. They share with these believers, hey guys, you know what? You're not saved by faith in Jesus alone. You're saved by faith in Jesus plus the works of the law. They bought into that lie. It was a stumbling block to them. It hindered their relationship with God. It's a perfect example of when Jesus says, you better not put an offense, a stumbling block, a cause for someone else, his relationship with God to be damaged or hindered. So a third way we can be an offense is if we teach things or tell people things that are not biblical. Those are just a few biblical examples so that we have a better perspective of when Jesus says offenses what he's talking about, what he's referring to. So Jesus starts off with this warning concerning offenses. He says, you know, first, it's impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him whom they do come. Notice what Jesus says to begin with. You know what? It's impossible that offenses don't come. The reality is there's always going to be people who offend. Whether it's purposeful, whether it's a misled love, whether it's something, but the reality is there's always going to be those who offend, always going to be those who stumble other believers, who do things that hinder people's relationship with God. Jesus says that's going to exist, but here's the warning. Woe if it's you. Woe to you if you're the guilty party. Woe to you if you're the one who's causing this person to stumble. Essentially, Jesus is saying people are going to take the bait but woe to you if you're the one offering the hook. People are going to trip up, but woe to you if you're the one setting the stumbling block in their way. People are going to be deceived, but woe to you if you are the deceiver. Woe to you if you're the cause of someone having this problem in their relationship with God. Jesus goes on to help us understand the severity of this. He doesn't just throw that out there. Whenever woe's in there, that should be a warning in and of itself. But Jesus goes on to explain something to help us understand how he sees the severity of this. Notice what he says. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than he should offend one of these little ones. When I was in Israel, I took this picture This is right next to the Sea of Galilee. This is actually where Jesus was speaking to his disciples. And Jesus did this often where he would use what was around him. And so he's preaching this and he's probably just sitting there and pointing. It would be better if a millstone like this were hung around your neck. And here's a Sea of Galilee right here. And you were tossed into the sea. Now, this one's a smaller one, which they say weighs over 500 pounds. Bigger ones weigh over 1,000 pounds. Either way, one of those around your neck, you go in the sea, you're going straight to the bottom and you're going to drown. And the whole point is Jesus saying, you know what, better for you to drown and die this horrible death than to offend one of these little ones. With this example of being drowned by a millstone, Jesus is revealing to us how serious God takes it. How serious God takes stumbling people in a relationship with him. 
And I think, you know, that shouldn't surprise us. I want you to think for a moment of the person that means the most to you. The person who's, you know, the relationship that you have that is the closest, that's the most important. It could be your spouse. It could be your children. It could be your parents. It could be your best friend. But think about that for a moment. And I want you to kind of ponder a couple questions. How would you feel if someone did something to hinder or damage that relationship that you hold so dear? How would you feel if someone came and told a lie about you that caused that relationship that you have to be hurt? How would you feel if someone did something so that relationship now, that other person didn't really want to spend time with you very much, neglected you now because of what someone else did? And how would you feel towards that person who did those things to hinder that relationship that's so important to you? You see, God, the most important relationship with him, to him is those that he has with those who have accepted him. He's adopted us as his children. We are his children, and that relationship is very important to him. And when someone comes along and hinders that relationship with him and his child, he takes that very seriously. He thinks that's very bad. And unfortunately, oftentimes we don't. Oftentimes we have this nonchalant idea of who cares if I stumble someone in their relationship with God. Well, God does. God thinks that's something that's very severe, and he gives this example of, you know what, it'd be better for a millstone to be hung around your neck and tossed into the sea. That's how uh, severe I see this. God takes that very seriously, and we should as well. I think, sadly, many Christians, they don't take stumbling other believers very seriously. And when they do stumble someone else, they kind of just say, well, that's their problem. They're too sensitive. They are stumbled too easily, and so they just need to get over it. Instead of recognizing, no. I should see that I don't want to be the person doing that. And the reality is, young believers are easily stumbled, just like children are easily stumbled. And so we shouldn't be surprised when people who are young in the faith, kind of like when Paul in Romans 14 is describing, there are those who recognize who are more mature, they can eat what they want, and there are those who are less mature that don't understand that. But you who are more mature, don't stumble the young believer. And we're in a church world, and hopefully people are getting saved, and there's always young believers, and we need to be cautious and careful that we do not stumble or cause any type of offense or problem to come between God and that individual. Now, through this example, we noted that this is something serious, but I think we also need to understand that, you know, if you do cause someone else to stumble, this isn't saying that you're going to lose your salvation and incur the eternal wrath of God. David, he did something pretty significant in stumbling a lot of people. He committed adultery, then he committed murder, And then we're told that it was an offense to all the nations around them, that they blasphemed God because of it. So David was pretty guilty of doing this, but yet he sought forgiveness and God forgave him. For those who were there on Thursday nights, remember Paul? He comes and he's fellowshipping with the Gentiles and the Judaizers come and he walks away from them. He was an offense to them. He abandons them, makes them feel like they're not worthy to be Christians. But once again, he repents and he also is forgiven. And the same is true for us. You know, we're probably all guilty of doing this, uh, but yet we just need to come to the Lord and seek forgiveness and definitely come to the people that we have offended and seek forgiveness to them as well. You know, one of the best solutions to not cause another believer to stumble is in 1 John chapter 2, verse 10. It says this, He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. The best way to not stumble someone is to truly love them and treat them with that love. If you do that, you know what? You're not going to be an offense. You're not going to cause a stumble to them because you are treating them and dealing with them in that very loving way. So the first thing that really matters that Jesus shares with his disciples and us is the importance of not stumbling other believers. The second and third thing, they come together It's a relational thing we're going to see here in verses 3 and 4. Let's see what it says. Take heed to yourself. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times a day he returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. The challenge in verses 1 and 2 was don't stumble another believer. But Jesus said, you know what, that's always going to happen. There are always people who are doing that. So now we come to the next thing. What happens when someone sins against you? What happens when someone stumbles you? What happens when someone does something that causes an offense to you? 
Well, Jesus says, now there's some steps that you need to take. And this is so important because the reality is within the body of Christ, we all sin against one another. You know, a lot of people have this fairy tale notion of, oh, I get saved, I'm among Christians, and everyone's going to be so wonderful and loving, and, and no one's ever going to sin against me. Well, if we were perfect, sinless people, that would be good, but that's only going to happen when we get to heaven. The reality is, yes, we're forgiven, but we're still sinners. And a lot of people leave churches, and I'm just looking for the perfect church. Well, you know, when you find it, you're going to corrupt it, because you're not perfect either. But the reality is, we're all sinful, and when we come together, we offend one another. So the question now becomes, what do I do? When someone sins against me, what is the biblical response that I should have to that? Well, this is what Jesus tells us here. First, he says, when someone sins against you, you need to rebuke that person. Now, when we hear that word rebuke, there's a lot of negative, angry connotations that kind of come with that. The Greek word here reading uh, just means to admonish or charge someone with something they've done against you. So you come to someone and you tell them, hey, you've done this against me. You've sinned in this way against me. It hurt me. And biblically, we always should do this in love. Love in how we say it, love in our action, and love in the ultimate goal of why we're bringing this to the person to begin with. In my experience with helping people work through relational conflicts, I found this first step is often neglected completely, or if it is done, it's done very unlovingly. Sadly, rarely do I see this being done biblically. It's either just abandoned or it's done unlovingly. It's not actually done properly, biblically, with love. You know, I've been saddened to see that many believers would rather walk away from a strained relationship than to give a loving rebuke. They'd rather walk away from a church than to deal with an issue that they have with someone in the body of Christ. You know what? I'm just not going to deal with it. Just forget it. I'll just go to some other church. But you know what the pattern becomes? In that church, since it's full of a bunch of sinners as well, someone's eventually going to cause an offense. And what they do is, well, I'm just going to go to a new church. And then they cause offense. And then they just keep moving because they don't want to deal with and resolve the hurt. But you know what? That's not loving. When you love someone, you want to sort that out. When you love someone, you want to reconcile. When you love someone, you want to get that relationship right again. Jesus makes this very clear in Matthew's gospel, chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. He says this, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with him one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Jesus makes very clear that the first step that you and I need to take is to go to that person alone and to share with them what they did to you. It's a private thing. It's between you and them alone. And the goal of doing this note is to see them repent and that your relationship with them would be restored. Now, Jesus says, you know what? If you go alone, they don't hear, they don't listen, they don't repent. He says, you know what? Then go grab a couple people and go back to them and share this with them again, with those people with you. Once again, with the purpose of repentance and reconciliation. But if you and those people come and there's still no repentance, there's still no recognition, there's still no change, then it says, bring it to the leaders in the church and let them go and deal with that individual. So a biblical rebuke is to go alone with the goal in mind of repentance and restoration. But let me share with you some unbiblical approaches to rebuking because I think we're all guilty of them and these are things that we should not do. Something we should not do is when someone has sinned against us, go and tell as many people that we can, but not tell the individual that sinned. This is one that I see in the body of Christ probably the most common. And as a pastor, I see people regularly come to me and they'll tell me elaborate things of what someone has done to them. And you know, pastor, you need to go talk with them. And my first question is always, have you? And then I bring them here to the Matthew and I say, the first step is that you privately should have gone to them, not come to me and not tell all the other people that you've told. You should have gone to them privately and tried to restore and reconcile and it can have been done there. But sadly, what we do is we tell this person, oh, do you know what, what this person did to me? And you know, we want to tell everyone and, and let everyone know what's going on. 
Or we feel like, oh, I didn't tell anyone. I just posted it on Facebook and Instagram, and, you know, and, and all my followers see it, but that's okay. But you know, in our social media age, we kind of fight our battles you know, out there, which, once again, is not a biblical approach. Social media is not the place you need to deal with conflict or sin someone has done against you. When you tell a bunch of people the person sinned against you and you don't go to that person alone, that's definitely an unbiblical approach. And it really shows that you don't love that person. You don't love them enough to go to them. You don't love them enough to restore that relationship with them. You don't love them enough to keep it private and not to tell everyone else the faults that they have in their life. And you don't love them enough to have the goal that's, you know what, I want to see reconciliation and repentance. You know, I think also some Christians try to mask this with prayer requests. Can you pray for so-and-so? Because they did this horrible thing to me, and let me tell you what it was, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, they really need the Lord's help right now. And all you're really doing is doing the exact same thing, but you think you're getting away with it because you start with this phrase, can you pray for this person? And most people that I know who do that, they don't really have a desire for you to pray for that person. They just want to vent on you and tell you all that this person has done, just like they normally do in other uh, ways. But now they say, well, it's a prayer request, so it's okay. It's biblical. It's right for me to say this. Go to that person first. Share it with them, and hopefully it ends there because they respond with repentance. Another unbiblical rebuke is just to bottle up everything inside and not say anything at all and allow the relationship just to get worse and worse. I will say this. There are some small things, little things that, you know, just the reality of being a part of the body of Christ, you're going to get people who do sinful things that aren't really a big deal. And if you can just let them go, truly let them go, I think that's healthy. And as you mature in the Lord, I think that's probably going to be more and more common where you just, you don't have to, you just, you know what, that's not, they're, they're immature in the Lord or whatever, and I can just move on. But if there's something done to you that you're just trying to say, you know what, I don't want to deal with it, but I'm just going to bottle it up. Uh, but it's, it's hurting you. It's, it's causing pain. It's something that you're not able to let go. That is not a healthy response because what happens ultimately is that relationship that you had with that person is getting worse and worse the longer you're holding on to that and not dealing with that. Any of those of you who are married recognize that. The longer you don't deal with a conflict, the bigger it gets. You know, and when I talk with married couples sometimes and, and you see what has become this huge thing, and then when you work back, you find out oftentimes that the start of it was such a little petty thing that wasn't dealt with. And then in one person's mind, because it wasn't dealt with, it just grew and it grew and it grew. And all of a sudden, after weeks or months or possibly even years of never dealing with it, now it's this monster issue that I want to leave you because of, and, and it's become something huge. And it's not just within marriage, it's within any relationship. When we don't deal with things, it can be very, very problematic. You know, I've seen people come to me and they say, you know, I used to be so close to so-and-so, and I just don't know what's going on. They're so cold to me now. They just seem not to want to be near me anymore. And I just, I don't know what's going on. And so bring them together, have them start talking it out. And you'll find out that, oh my goodness, you know, maybe a year ago or months ago, I, you did this to me and I didn't forgive you and I didn't tell you. And, and I've been holding this resentment and it's just been getting worse and worse. And that person usually is like, well, why didn't you say something? I, I would have repented. I'm so sorry. And, and then afterwards, they often leave with like, oh, you know, it's so great. And it's like, man, if you would have done this six months ago or a year ago or whatever, you know, we could have saved yourself from all this heartache and ill will. Another biblical rebuke or unbiblical rebuke is to have the wrong goal in rebuking someone. Remember, the goal of rebuking someone is for repentance and restoration. And I, I find that, sadly, that's not often the goal of why people rebuke. The goal is not to get it off your chest. The goal is not to give them a piece of your mind. The goal is not to prove that you're right and they are wrong. It's not to hurt them in the same way that they hurt you. It's not to punish them so they can get a taste of how you feel. The goal in rebuking people ultimately should be to bring repentance and restoration in the relationship with you, the relationship with the Lord, and the relationship with maybe any others who have been involved. And until you have that goal clearly in mind, you are not ready or able to rebuke in love. You might kind of consider, well, you know, and that's probably the worst thing possible. You get offended, you're angry, and then you go rebuking in that anger instead of rebuking in love. And I would say, you know what? If you're not ready to go rebuke in love, wait and go pray. 
and ask the Lord to help change your attitude, change your heart, and make sure, because the bottom line is when you do it that way in anger, all you're doing is now you're sinning, and you're adding to the problem, and now there was this issue against you, but you've responded in an unbiblical way, and so now you have brought sin against them, and now it just makes the matter even worse. Instead of going away, praying, asking the Lord to give you wisdom and love and coming and approaching it properly, and then all of a sudden you can restore that relationship in a biblical way. And I'm sure all of us have been guilty of coming with anger, coming with wrath, coming with different things, and we realize that doesn't help the relationship. It just causes a whole new issue that we now have to deal with. Now, I know it's not pleasant to have to rebuke someone for a sin they committed against you. It's not something we look forward to. Oh, I hope someone does some sin against me today so I can go and and tell them about it. You know, we don't like it. And that's why oftentimes we shy away from it. We don't want conflict. We don't like those things. But at the end of the day, if we truly love that person and we want to keep the relationship the way it was, we have to come and bring that. Do it in a loving way with the goal of repentance and restoration. But the longer we wait, usually the worse it gets. So the second thing that really matters in the Christian life is to rebuke people who sin against you in a loving way. A rebuke in love comes to them alone, first and foremost, with a desire to see them repent and to have the relationship restored. Now, the third thing flows right out of the second. You come to them, you share this with them, and then they come back to you and they do what you hopefully wanted them to do. They repent. And guess what? Now it's back on you to respond to that repentance And notice what Jesus says now our response needs to be. Verses 3 and 4. Take heed to yourself. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now here's where it becomes difficult again for us. All right, now I just did the hard thing of I shared the sin, and they surprisingly actually repented. But guess what? Now I have to respond with forgiveness. Be willing to forgive them for what they did against me. The response that you and I should always give to repentance is forgiveness. And notice Jesus gives an extreme example to show his view of forgiveness. He says, if someone comes to you and sins against you seven times in one day, each time they come and repent, you need to forgive them. Now, for us, someone sins against us once and they repent, okay, twice, maybe three times you're pushing it, and then four times, forget it. Seven times in a row that they sin against me, and each time they repent, and I'm told, I need to forgive them. You see, Jesus wants us to recognize that any time someone comes with repentance, our response should be one of forgiveness. Now, this Greek word translated forgive means to let go, to release, to give up, to forgive. So forgiveness is letting go. It's releasing. It's giving up the sin someone does against you. When you forgive, you ultimately choose to let it go, to let it drop, not to bring it up at every opportunity you can and throw it back in that person's face, especially within marriage that becomes very problematic. Forgiveness is also letting go of the bitterness, letting go of the anger, letting go of the resentment that you feel towards that person because of the sin that they committed against you. So forgiveness is not only letting go of what the person has done, but also letting go of your bad feelings towards them. You know, oftentimes when someone sins against us, we do the exact opposite of this, and I'm sure all of us are guilty of it. We hold on to what they've done. We aren't willing to let it go. And as we hold on to their sin, we become more bitter. We become more angry. We become more frustrated. And it just hurts our relationship with them more and more. You know, throughout my life, and I'm sure maybe you can relate to this, I've struggled with forgiving different people. And something that the Lord has always shown me and brought me back to when I'm struggling with forgiveness or I'm thinking this person doesn't deserve my forgiveness or look what they did. I mean, surely that's too much to forgive. God always brings me back to what Christ has done to forgive me. Oh, they sinned against you seven times? How many times did you sin against me again? How many times have you continued to do that sin against me and I still forgive you? Oh, oh, that they're not deserving? How deserving were you of me to give my life for you? How deserving were you when I offered you forgiveness? You know, almost always when you see the Bible speaking of forgiveness, there's a connection to remember how Christ forgave you. 
And I think that's so important whenever you think, well, that person's not, you know, deserving of it. Well, neither were you. So offer it, because we're offering it as Christ has offered forgiveness to us. It's not because they're deserving. It's because we're commanded to do it. The goal of a rebuke is to see the person repent of their sin. And when they repent, we need to respond with forgiveness. And our goal in forgiveness should ultimately be reconciliation. To reconcile and restore the relationship that was damaged by sin. And the only way that's going to happen is if we make a choice to forgive. Make a choice to let go of those feelings of hurts and bitterness and anger. And truly say, you know what, I'm going to forgive you of this. Biblical forgiveness does not say, you know what, I forgive you, but I never want to see your stinking face again. Biblical forgiveness opens the way for restoration and those wounds to be healed. And often people say, well, I forgive you, but, you know, I'm never going to spend any time with them. Well, you don't forgive them then. You're bitter. You're still angry. You don't want to even see them. That's not forgiveness. An Anglican pastor and poet named George Herbert wrote, he who cannot forgive breaks the bridge over which he must pass himself. Here's another thing to keep in mind. When you don't forgive, you often think it's just hurting that person. That's usually why we don't do it. I don't forgive you because I'm going to make you suffer. I don't forgive you because I'm going to show you the pain that you've shown me. You know, I want to punish you with this lack of forgiveness. And we think, I'm hurting you, and now it makes me feel good that I get to hurt you because you hurt me. But here's the thing that we often miss. When we don't forgive, yes, it hurts the other person, and we've found that to be true. But you know what? It also hurts me. And oftentimes it hurts me even more. I have found people who are so embittered and so angry at someone, and that person's clueless. They're going, living their life, doing their thing. They don't even know how angry this person is, and, oh, I'm making them suffer. Actually, they don't even know. You're the one suffering. You're the one who has all this bitterness and anger because you won't forgive. And so it's not just the person that we won't forgive that suffers. It's us, and we need to recognize. That's one of the reasons Jesus says it, not just for the the goal of restoration, but for you, forgive, because it only hurts you. If you don't, Corey Ten Boom, a, a Jewish woman who suffered through the atrocities of the Holocaust, suffered through concentration camps, lived to tell about it. She wrote a book called The Hiding Place. And within it, she tells a story of forgiveness. And I just want to read it. It was a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room of mocking men, the heaps of clothes, Betsy's pain, blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. To think that, as you say, he has washed away my sins. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to people the need to forgive, kept my hand by my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I pray, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand, but I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened from my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it's not our forgiveness any more than it's our goodness that this world's healing hinges, but on God's. When he tells us to love our enemy, he gives along with the command, the love itself. What a powerful story of forgiveness and also a recognition of, you know what? God will give us what we need if we will ask him to do that. The third thing that really matters in the Christian life is to forgive people who sin against you. To completely let go of what they have done and to restore and reconcile the relationship. Well, the disciples and us, they receive a pretty big challenge. They recognize, whoa, what you're saying here, Jesus, is not easy to do. You don't want us to ever cause offenses. Uh, you don't want us to, you know, you want us to rebuke and love. You want us to forgive, even if they do something seven times in one day. They realize this is hard. I'm sure as you're listening, you think this is hard. This is something that seems maybe something I can't do. And so they ask Jesus for something after he tells them this. Notice what they ask 
in verses 6 and 7. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Notice the disciples asked Jesus to increase their faith. They recognized that great faith in God was needed to accomplish what God just told them to do. Oh, well, you need to, you know, make sure that you're not offending. You need to make sure that you're rebuking and love. You need to make sure that you're continually forgiving. And they realize we need more faith in you. We need more trust in you if we're going to accomplish that. Jesus responds to the request by saying, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. You know, something important to understand is that faith is only as good as that which you place your faith in. Faith in and of itself has no power to help you. What has the power is what you place your faith into. If you put your faith in yourself or someone else, if you put your faith in a false religion or a false god, you know, at the end of the day, that faith does you no good. That faith has no power to really help you accomplish anything. The reason we as Christians look at faith and say, man, this faith has real power is because it, we're putting our faith in the all-powerful God. When you put faith in the all-powerful God of the Bible, now the God who spoke everything into existence, there's nothing too big for him. You recognize, I'm placing my faith in you, and that's why it has power, because you have power. Because faith in and of itself isn't what is powerful. It's that which you place your faith in. And God has the power to accomplish anything. And so the disciples recognize we need our faith increased in you, God, because we know that you have the power to do so much. We've seen you do it throughout your earthly ministry, and we need that faith in you because we know you have this power to enable us to do the things that you've told us to do. And I think it's interesting that Jesus responds with this response because he's showing that even a small amount of faith like a mustard seed can do amazing things. Even a little amount of faith in an amazing God is still able to accomplish a lot. And imagine what a great amount of faith in God can do. You know, I think something you and I need to understand is that God will never tell us to do something that he will not give us the power to accomplish. So often we think God's commanded it to me, but he's just sitting up there in heaven and he's just laughing at the fact that I'm never able to do it. We're not, we don't serve a God like that. He loves us, and he says, you know what? I command you to do this, but trust me, I will give you what you need to accomplish it. But you need to look to me for that. In and of yourself, you don't have it. This world doesn't have it. And if you're looking for in those places to receive it, you're never going to be able to accomplish it. Look to me. Trust in me. I will give you what you need. So don't think, well, Lord, that's an impossible command. Well, in and of yourself, yes, it is. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He will give us what we need to accomplish the things that he tells us to do. But sadly, I think oftentimes we don't believe that. Too often we face these difficult situations and we think, man, there's no way I could forgive this person. Lord, if you knew how wretched this person was, how horrible this person was, what this person did to me, you would know I can't forgive them. He says, yes, you can, if you'll trust in me to give you that forgiveness. And I love that story with Cory uh, Temboom because, man, here's a, a person, and if you go read on more, I mean, this man was guilty of murdering her sister, and it's just horrible. And here's a man that she has every reason in the world to say, I'm not forgiving you. After what you did to me and what you did to my family and the horrible things you did to so many Jews, there's no way you deserve forgiveness. There's no way I'm offering you forgiveness. But yet she recognized, hey, who am I not to forgive this person that God died on the cross for? And she was willing to say, Lord, you give it to me. I'm praying. I, I don't have it in myself. I don't have any feelings of love for this guy. I'm not even willing to lift my hand to him. But please help me forgive. And the Lord was faithful to do that. Lord, I can't deal with this person. There's no way I could rebuke them in love. They're just so difficult. Love them enough to approach them with this. Trust me that I'll give you wisdom and patience in the midst of that discussion. Lord, there are just way too many areas in my life that I stumble people. I just can't see myself ever changing. Trust the Lord that he can do that. Trust the Lord that he can remove those difficulties and temptations and help you to overcome whatever seems to be impossible in your life. Remember, we serve a God who spoke everything into existence. And so to give you the ability to forgive or to love or to change is nothing for him. So the fourth thing that really matters in the Christian life is to have faith in God to enable you to do what he commands you to do. 
And notice what Jesus has dealt with so far is all relational. Relationships really are what matter to God the most and what should matter to us. Remember, what are the two greatest commandments? Love God, the relationship between us and him. Love others, relationship with us and others. Those are the two most important things to God. Love me, love other people. Those relationships are vital. And and Jesus starts off with these essential things with, you know what? I want to keep the love in these relationships. And so, first of all, don't offend anyone who has a relationship with me because you're going to hinder that relationship. And I do not want that happening at all. And I take that very serious. And second, when someone offends you, rebuke them in love. Restore that relationship. And when they repent, forgive them so that you'll restore that relationship, keep the relationship of love between me and others right, and the relationship of love between you and others right. You know, the reality is Satan loves to destroy relationships. First relationship he wants to destroy is yours with God. His first goal is that you would never get a relationship with God, and then if you do accept Jesus Christ and have a relationship with God, his next goal is to make sure it never grows. He wants it to always just, he comes in there, he always wants to get in the way of that, and he'll use all sorts of different ways and mechanisms in order for that to happen. But he also wants to destroy our relationships with one another. He wants to destroy your relationship with your spouse, with your kids, with your parents, with your coworkers, with your neighbors, with your friends. He loves to destroy relationships. We have to be aware of that. That's part of the, the, the battle that we're in. You know, probably some of you in marriage sometimes just ask yourself, what's going on? Where's all this coming from? And sometimes you'd have to take a step back and realize, you know what? We're in a battle here. Everything was great. We're driving and all of a sudden, boom, there's this huge conflict or something going on. You're thinking, where in the world did that come from? Why is it we're at each other's throats? Everything was so nice and great just a few minutes ago. Realize the enemy wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your relationships. And that's a great time just to pray Ask the Lord for patience, for love, to approach that conflict in a biblical way, to reconcile and resolve, because he would love to bring destruction. So the first thing that really matters in the Christian life, don't stumble other believers. Remember that people's relationship with God is very important to him, and it should be very important to us. Second, rebuke in love. Love the person who sinned against you enough to bring that sin to their attention so they can repent and change. Third, forgive people who sin against you. Don't hold on to the sin. Don't go tell everyone else about it. Just forgive them. Fourth, have faith in God to enable you to do what he commands you to do. The only way we're going to put these three things into practice is recognizing God is the source of what we need in order to do this. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for the relationship that you made possible for us. That you just didn't say, I love you, but you demonstrated that love in the most powerful way by giving your life for us. And you desire that we would show love towards others. As your word tells us, a new command that I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. All will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. That is something that is such a a huge desire of yours that we would show that love. And Lord, we recognize that one of the greatest areas in life where we need to demonstrate that love is when we have been sinned against, when there is a conflict, when there is an issue that we need to act in love, we need to respond in love, we need to speak in love. We need to have the goal that's a loving goal of restoration and reconciliation. And all of us are guilty, Lord, of of not doing that. Some of us maybe even on our way to church this morning were guilty of not doing that, Lord. But we pray that you would help us change. We pray that you would help us to be those who, who don't bring an offense and a stumbling block in the way of others. We would be those who truly would be loving enough to share with someone when they have hurt us with a heart's desire to really keep that relationship going. And that definitely, Lord, when anyone ever comes to us with repentance, we would respond with forgiveness. And Lord, that we would just think back and remember you. And when we came to you and we expressed that we want to place our faith in you and that we trusted that you would take all of our sin, past, present, and future, and that you would forgive them all, that you would wash us white as snow, 
that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far you have removed our transgressions from us, that we would recognize that that is the kind of forgiveness and heart that you want us to have towards others. And so we are so grateful for what you have done for us, Lord, but help us to be those who are that example of you in the way in which we demonstrate love, in the way in which we forgive, in the way in which we rebuke and love, Lord. In our relationships, help us to be a witness for you. And Lord, as the disciples, we realize we need you to do that. We need more trust and faith and confidence in the fact that you are capable of giving us all that we need to accomplish what seems so often very difficult, especially in the heat of an argument or the, the heat of, of some kind of conflict, Lord, that we would take a step back. And even as we saw with Corey Temboom, Lord, in the midst of that, pray and ask that you would give us what we need to be able to love and forgive the way that you want us to. So we're grateful for you, Lord. We're, we're thankful for all that you've done for us. We ask that this week, we could actually put these things into practice because we know that we are going to encounter people, whether it's our spouse or family members or co-workers or friends or church people, Lord, we're going to encounter people who sin against us. And we now have the opportunity to put these things into practice. And, and we're going to be the guilty party as well, Lord, and, and we have the opportunity to come and ask for forgiveness. And so help us to do this this week. Help us to put it into practice. Help it not just to be an intellectual thing that we have grasped, but more importantly, something that you help us to actually apply to our lives that we would continue to walk in through the rest of our Christianity. We love you, Lord. We thank you for getting us here on a rainy day with flooding roads and a time just to fellowship, a time to worship, a time to receive from you, a time to come to you in prayer. And Lord, we recognize we need you. And we are here because we want you to meet our needs and to help us with the areas that we struggle with. And so we just pray, Lord, that you would intervene in each and every person here. You know the struggles, you know the temptation, you know the hardships, you know what they're dealing with, Lord. Encourage them. Help them. Speak to them. Lord, help us to leave here knowing that we've had a true encounter with you that will change us to be more like you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we go ahead and close with a song of worship?